Keith, I really appreciate your heart just for preaching the Word of God and preaching it in an expository way where we let the, the message of the text be the message of the sermon. And that really is our heart here. Um, and, uh, and just kind of, I, I think, to, to piggyback on what you were saying, is if, if we, as a community, if we don't get this, this notion that Christ is supreme and that Christ is central in everything that we do, if we don't get that right, we'll get nothing else right. And it doesn't matter how polished our presentation is, how good the worship is, we'll miss it. We, Christ has to be central in, in everything that we do in our worship, in our, in our study of the Word. And so, uh, yeah, with that we're going to kick off. I do want to give you a little bit of background on the book of Colossians. I think out of, out of all of Paul's letters, Colossians is the one that is uh, maybe one of the, the, the most difficult to access because the, the historical background, the things that are going on behind it, are, are so far removed from our experience. And, and, and scholars, frankly, they, they don't know a lot of what was going on uh, in the book of Colossians. The, they found the historical location of the city of Colossae, but it's never been excavated. And so, and so we, uh, so some of what we know about the background is what we've pieced together the best of our ability. But just want to, uh, so the letter to the Colossians is called Colossians because it was written to the church at Colossae. It's one of four letters that were known as the prison or captivity epistles of Paul. They were so-called because they were written during periods of Paul's imprisonment, uh, presumably at Rome. And uh, so at the, time, at the time that Paul wrote Colossians and its companion letter, which is Philemon, he was probably imprisoned at Rome awaiting trial. Uh, details in the letter suggest that the church at Colossae was not started by Paul. It seems that Paul had never actually been to Colossae, but it was started by one of his ministry associates, a guy named Epaphras. And uh, in Acts 19, verse 10, it says that Paul spent a long period of time in Asia, uh, specifically in the city of Ephesus. And during that time that he was there, it's, uh, Luke, Luke writes in Acts 19:10 that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord went out to all of Asia. So it's very likely that this guy, Epaphras, who was a Colossian, came over to Ephesus and heard Paul teaching in the hall of Tyrannus and uh, took the gospel back to Colossae. Uh, if we have a map, uh, Colossae is located in the Lycus River Valley, and there are three cities, a uh, very short distance apart, Hierapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. Laodicea you probably recognize from the book of Revelation uh, as the church that was not doing too good. Um, but at the time that Paul, at, at the end of this epistle, Paul mentions Laodicea as, and he says that he actually wrote a letter to that church also. And he expected these letters that he was writing to be circulated among the churches and to be read. And so when Paul's writing these letters, and this is important when we think about the authority of Scripture, Paul is self-consciously writing documents that he intends to be authoritative for all the churches. He intends for these letters to be circulated and read and obeyed. Um, and so while Paul is in prison, this, this gentleman, Epaphras, 
apparently he makes a journey to Rome because there is a heresy that is rising up in in Colossian in Colossae, and he uh, so he goes to Rome to seek Paul's help with this issue. Where what exactly was going on in Colossae is one of the things that scholars speculate about the most. We know that it was. It had elements of Jewish mysticism in it. In uh, chapter 2, verse 16, he, Paul mentions uh, f- they were paying attention to festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, um, that they were preoccupied with visions, and there was this belief that they could uh, harsh treatment of their bodies. This probably came out of pagan folk religion, but this idea that harsh treatment of their body would lead them to a higher spiritual experience. So fasting was a really big deal. Um, and then he, he says in chapter 2, verse 8, that it's a, a philosophy. So it's, so it's drawing from Jewish mysticism, pagan philosophy, uh, pagan folk religions. But the basic idea at the heart of it, there was this idea these Colossian Christians were believing that they believed in Jesus, but somehow Jesus was not quite enough in order to really achieve Knowledge, or so knowledge was a key word for them. Fulfillment or completeness um, was a key word for them. In order to be complete or in order to achieve true knowledge, you had to add on all these extra things, all these extra that Paul says are just traditions of men. And they have no value um, for leading us to a higher spiritual experience. So Paul's response to the Colossian error in its essence, is to be complete in Christ, all you need is Christ himself. Jesus has already done everything that you need to be complete in Christ. Christ really is enough. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And so I think that this this warning that Paul gives the Church of Colossae is still relevant for us because we... In our, in our Christian lives, we can have this tendency to, to want to add things or to become distracted and preoccupied by things. If you turn on some television stations and, and watch, you'll see uh, teachers that are kind of preoccupied with peripheral things, things that are not the core of the gospel. They're not preaching Christ alone. They're preaching, yeah, Jesus, we believe in Jesus, but this is what's really important. This is what you really need to know as a Christian where the message of the New Testament is that you need to focus on the gospel. You need to focus on Christ. And if you will just focus on him and press into him, he'll take care of the rest. All right, and with that, we'll go ahead and get into the text of Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Uh, verses 3 through 14 basically break down into two big sections. The first section is Paul's thanksgiving and prayer for what the Lord is already doing at Colossae um, and how the gospel is spreading and how the gospel is impacting the lives of the believers there. And then in verses 9 through 14, uh, he's telling them what it is that he prays for them. What are his prayer priorities for, for their lives? Um, So the big idea tonight is going to be centering our lives around Jesus. Our proper response to God's sovereign work of grace in our lives 
is to seek to please him in every way. And you'll see how that gets fleshed out. Specifically, when we start looking at 9 through 14, Paul really gives us four specific things that mark um, a life that's pleasing to God. But beginning uh, verses 3 through 8, Paul gives thanks that God is at work in the church at Colossae. He says, beginning in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, that is the gospel, that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. And so, just a few things that we want to draw out of this uh, draw out of this passage in verses six and seven. Paul highlights that the Colossians received the gospel. They, they did not seek it, but it came to them. God took the initiative in advancing the gospel. Uh, it was, so Paul, through Paul's worldview, he sees it as a work of God, that Epaphras came, uh, Ephesus, that he received the gospel, that he brought it back to them and offered it to them. Paul sees that all as, all as a work of God. And verse 7 says they learned the grace of God from Epaphras. And then in uh, verse 5, it says, the, um, well, Paul tells us that the um, objective basis for the obedience of the Colossians is the promise of God. He says the faith that they possess toward God, he says the love that they have for one another, this springs from the hope that they have uh, laid up for them or stored up for them. If you... Uh, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, this word stored up is used. And when we read it in English, we get the idea that it means just reserved. But in Greek, the emphasis of the word is on its certainty. Um, so in Hebrews 9, 27, this same word is, is translated, uh, in, in the NIV it's translated destined, uh, in the... In New American Standard, it's translated appointed. And Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto men to die once, and then comes judgment. And so that verse makes it very clear that the, the emphasis of the word is on the certainty of it. So death is laid up once for every man, and then, and then comes judgment. The hope that is laid up for you, the emphasis is that it's a sure and a certain hope because it's based on the promise of God, and because that you can be so sure and so certain of it, he says it gives birth to this faith and this love in community. It's only when we really embrace the hope that God has laid up for us that, that we can walk out our faith, that we can persevere in faithful living and faithful love toward one another. Amen? And then... In verses 5 and 6, and this is more implicit where I'm, I'm kind of teasing this out based on what else Paul says. But he 
that there is only one true gospel. He says in uh, verses 5 and 6, he says the, the, the faith, that, the hope that's stored up and that you've already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. He says all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace and, grace and truth. So his point is that this gospel, bear in mind there were people in their community that were trying to convince them that this gospel that they had received, this Jesus-only gospel, was not quite enough, that you needed to do some more. But Paul says, the, go- the gospel that Epaphras got from me, I got from Jesus. And this is the true gospel that you received in truth. So you don't need any other gospel. Um, and we can say the same thing today. We, the, the gospel that we've received, the gospel that you have in the pages of your New Testament is the only gospel that you need. So when the, the little boys on bikes in white shirts show up at your door and they try to hand you, they offer you another book besides the one that holds the gospel, you don't need theirs. And when the Jehovah's Witnesses show up and they offer you their translation of the Bible, their book that they think has the gospel in it, you don't need that because this gospel that you have has been around for two thousand years this contains the gospel that jesus preached was the gospel that paul preached was the gospel that epaphras preached with so on and so on and so on until it got to old east dallas and it's the same gospel that jesus preached uh so you won't find that one true gospel in the book of mormon book of mormon was written in 1830 so there you know we're a couple hundred years go, go getting close Uh, Not in the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation, which was published in 1961. Now, Jehovah's Witnesses have been around since about the 1870s. Um, So the movement itself, but they didn't have a Bible till the 60s. So um, these, these cults are novelties. What we have is the one true gospel that's been in circulation for thousands of years. All right, we're going to move on to 9 through 14. Paul reveals his prayer priorities for the Colossian Christians. Verses 9 through 14, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, Growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." In verse 9, we see the prayer's content. He, he specifically prays that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And he says that this, in, in all uh, spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding, and that word spiritual means, it doesn't mean like 
ethereal, spiritual wisdom like secret knowledge. It means knowledge that comes from the Spirit. Wisdom that comes from the Spirit. It has its source in the Spirit. So there's a certain wisdom that when I, if, I, if I'm not relying on the Spirit, there, I come to certain conclusions, and those certain conclusions will, will lead me astray. But he says, I want you to be filled with a knowledge of God that is supernatural, that only comes from the Spirit of God. And if you're not pressing in, if you're not yielding yourself to the Spirit of God, you don't have access to it. And so there's this, this idea of, of, of dependency, a sense that if, if God does not meet me and meet my need, I have no hope. And that, this is, that's the kind of church we need to be. If we're really going to make an impact in this community, we've got to come to a, 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 possess a strong sense of our total dependency on God. Um, so wisdom that comes from the Spirit. Uh, yeah, so we're dependent on God the Holy Spirit to bestow these gifts. And then next, the prayer's purpose in verse 10, he says that he prays this to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding uh, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him in every way. My notes are a mess. You will give me two seconds and I will be happier. Okay. Yep, to live a life worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him in every way. And I do want to digress just a moment here. In the contemporary church, I think there is a tendency to, to not really believe that we can live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Um, we, we, and I think this is for... There are two trends in the church that I think contribute to this, and they're sort of two sides of the same of the same coin. The first trend is a reaction to the heavy-handed legalism of a past generation that leaves us feeling that we can't measure up to someone else's idea of true spirituality. We don't want to be those heavy-handed legalists. This is like the social trend I see. We don't want to be perceived as heavy-handed legalists. And so we tend to emphasize the fact that we all fail to live up to God's standard. So we kind of we want to sort of give everybody a pass and say, yeah, I know, me too, man. It's too bad. I had a friend who was in a small group one time, and he was telling me, he's like, he's like my small group, he's like, there's no, there's no sense of repentance. There's no sense of the Spirit's power. He says it's just like an emotional barf session where we just go and we say how bad we're doing in our walk with Christ and say, well, I'll pray for you. Okay, and then, and then you go. But there's no sense in our community, in this community, there was no sense that, that people could really change and that we could really experience the Spirit's power for transformation. And that leads to the second trend, which I think is a misunderstanding of the human condition after salvation. So historically, the church embraces the doctrine of original sin which simply means that through Adam's sin, every human being inherits a moral corruption. We're thoroughly corrupt, and we're, we're, Paul says in Ephesians 2 
that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We possess no ability to, to make a move toward God until he does something in us that enables us to move toward him. And so, but this, this understanding of human nature, uh, how do I say this? We, when a person, let me put it this way, when a person is born again, you, Paul says that you're made alive together with Christ. God comes and he quickens your soul. He gives you ability to obey God. He energizes you, he empowers you, he enables you, and he urges you toward repentance and toward spiritual transformation. And so if the Holy Spirit has convicted you that something is sin, he has revealed to you that it is sin, then he will give you the power to stop doing it. And you don't have to continue in it. So you're, you're, you have been, Pastor Keith was talking today uh, just a little while ago, that you've been freed from the dominion of sin. You've been given liberty in Christ. For a person who's not a believer, that is not true. They are in bondage to sin. They're in bondage to the devil to do his will, Paul says. But if you're in Christ, you've been set free, and you now have a choice. And so, and so we have to, on one hand, have a right understanding of what God has done in us. He's given us, sorry, he's given us his spirit to give us power to overcome. And on the other hand, we've got to have the guts in our community to remind each other of that. We've got to hold each other accountable for the truth that greater is he who dwells in you than he who is in the world, right? And so just a, I've got a few verses just to sort of illustrate this, just so you don't think I'm theologizing. And we'll get to that on the next slide. Hint, hint. I'll tell you what, we'll do it the manual way. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 14, the Apostle Paul says, You, however, are, are controlled not by the sinful nature, I mean, you Christians who are born again, you are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit, you have the ability to say no to sin. Um, but if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. So he's saying you're, you're, that sinful, uh, sinful inclination is still present, but your spirit alive, is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are Sons and daughters of God. First Corinthians ten thirteen says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And first John three twenty four, which I quoted just a minute ago, 
uh, through 4, four says, Those who obey his commands, Jesus' commands, live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Dear friends, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 4 says, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And so, so Jesus has, even though we live in this middle period of the already and not yet, where, where we still wrestle against the flesh, we still wrestle with sin, because of what Christ has done, sin has been decisively defeated, and we've been given spiritual power to, to be changed and to live differently. And we've got to encourage one another every day uh, to be transformed to the image of Christ. And so uh, when the Apostle Paul talks about living a life that's pleasing to the Lord, he gives us four descriptions of what a life pleasing to the Lord looks like. First, he says, bearing fruit in every good work. Um, and so, and then, and he says, and also growing or increasing in the knowledge of God. And these these two things are sort of mutual. As we God reveals Himself to us, He reveals who He is, what it is He desires, and as we obey his will and we bear fruit, he reveals more of who he is and we bear more fruit. But God's desire is that we would bear fruit in every good work. And Jesus said that you can't bear fruit unless you're what? Unless you abide in him. He's the vine and we're the branches. If we're not connected to him, there will be no fruit bearing. And secondly, growing in the knowledge of God. Where's the primary place where we gain knowledge of God? Scriptures. This, this testimony that we've been using for 2,000 years. And so he says, when, when we, it's been uh, popular to talk about Christians having a quiet time, having this daily meeting with God. And, and there's been some heavy-handed legalism with, with the quiet time. That is put a put a bad taste bad, eh, bad taste in some people's mouth, um, but when we encourage people to have a quiet time to have a regular meeting with God, what we're what we're asking them to do is to connect to the vine, to abide in the vine that is Christ, to press in with Him daily in relationship, to grow in the knowledge of God through His Word and through prayer with Him. And so, and the point that I'm making is that we are, for these things, to do these things that God is calling us to do, to bear fruit, to grow in the knowledge of him, we need him. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it disconnected from the vine. We've got to, to press into God. And then third, Paul prays that you, they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that they would have great endurance and patience. I love this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, Endurance is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. Patience is what faith, hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible person. Uh, if you were going to live out the Christ life, and, and remember that this, was, uh, this, this was, letter was being written at a time when Christians were facing persecution 
as well as resisting false teaching. So if you're, if you're in the business of resisting false teaching and being a light in the world where God has placed you, you're probably going to encounter some resistance. You're going to encounter uh, some, some persecution at some level, whether it's social persecution where people just avoid you because they know you're that Jesus guy, or, um, or I know Pastor Keith has experienced some more serious persecution on the streets where uh, people get hot under the collar. And so, but these are things, again, that we can only get from the Lord. If you're going to face these things, you're going to have to, be a, you're going to, have, to have great endurance and great patience to represent Christ well. Um, and you don't have it in you to do. And then fourth, he says, giving thanks to the Father. And so he says, the fourth thing that marks a life pleasing to God is gratitude, a life of consistent thanksgiving. Again, this ought to be a part of our daily practice. But it's tough. I think my maybe the most difficult prayer that I pray of the day is the prayer over the evening meal. When I, when I get home and I've been hustling and bustling and doing stuff and my mind is racing and we sit down and I'm supposed to pray and connect with God and I'm, I'm, I'll pray a prayer and then I'll open my eyes and look at Terry and she's like, so you so didn't mean that, you know. I'm like, uh, uh, just, you know, my brain's fried and I'm, I'm, I'm cooked. So uh, praise God that he, he's mindful of our frame. He knows that we're dust. And, uh, but, but we need to be sincerely grateful. And if in the hubbub of daily life, the, 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 the flow of the current is to pull us away from gratitude. It's to, to make us look at ourselves and to get discontent. And, but So it takes discipline. It takes a daily discipline of choosing to be thankful, of figuring out what is it that I should be thankful for, and I'm going to be thankful if it kills me. And, but verses 13 and 14 bring us full circle back to the basis for our thankfulness. Namely, the work of God in our lives through the gospel. Paul says he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the people of God. Do you know that you don't have an inherent right to share in the inheritance of the people of God? You don't have an inherent right to go to heaven. God had to qualify you to go to heaven because you were disqualified by virtue of your sin. But it's because of what God has done in Christ that you can be qualified to enjoy eternal life with God. And he's rescued us from darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of Christ. We were in the dominion of darkness. We were under its power. Uh, And God rescued us, transferred us into the kingdom of Christ where we have liberty, freedom. And then especially, he says, we have through through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he's provided uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Um, It's through that redemption God paying the penalty of my sin through Christ's blood, and he can freely offer me forgiveness. He can treat me as though I had never sinned because Christ took my punishment. So you see, Paul's point is that the things that really matter, and we're about to talk about getting the things that distract us, but the things that really matter 
are the things that have already been done for us. Those things that are most essential, those things that ought to occupy our mind, are the things that, that have already been done for us. And because of those things that God has done, we have the ability to do everything that he requires for us. And the more that you meditate on the things that God has already done for you, the more that you reflect on what God has done for you in Christ, the more that you press into him and, and uh, enjoy him, and, and rejoice in what he's done for you, the, I promise you the greater ability you will have to walk out the things that he's asking you to do. He will give you spiritual power uh, when you press in in thanksgiving for the things that he's done. And so we're called to walk out the Christian life in a posture of humble gratitude, pointing others to the one who has made it all possible. Our song is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If I've got Jesus, I don't need anything else. But to tell the truth, I'm constantly tempted to think that what's really important is paying my mortgage, uh, paying my car payment, uh, selling enough furniture to pay my mortgage and my car payment, um, uh, and keeping my grass cut so that the city doesn't leave nasty notes on my door. Uh, You know, like I have all these things that distract me, things that Really, uh, they seem important at the time, and they, 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 they crowd my mind, and they crowd my heart, and before I know it, they start crowding Jesus out of the center of my life, and it's not, I'm not trying to be disloyal to Jesus, I'm just trying to get stuff done. But as I, as I endeavor to get stuff done, I, I, suddenly I turn around, and Jesus has been, been crowded out of the center of my life just by things that need to get done. More than anything else, Paul's letter to the Colossians calls us to set our minds and our affections on Christ alone, to recenter our lives around Jesus alone. His agenda is the one that truly matters. He said it this way, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That means we have to consciously choose to prioritize and organize our lives around Jesus' priorities. We have to consciously resist all those distractions that try to crowd to the center of my, of my life and my heart. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened by the Spirit's power, and giving thanks to the Father with joy. We'll only accomplish those things seeking the Spirit to equip and enable us. So we're going to move into a time of invitation. And uh, so, you know, when I get in that place where I find that Christ has crowded, my things have crowded Christ out of my heart, a term that we use for that is spiritually dry. Right? That's really the, the dry time is often when... Things other than Christ have worked their way into our heart and crowded out. And so if you're there, if you feel spiritually dry and you think that you've been distracted, you've been preoccupied, or for whatever reason that Christ is just not really centered, we want to offer time for you to come down and receive prayer. I just want to invite you to re-center. And I want to pray for you as you come. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, for this uh, group here. God, I, I pray for every one of them that you would, and myself, God, I just, I just pray that you would really help us to, 
to seek you first. All the things that in the busyness of life that we pursue, God, we just pray that you would put them in perspective, that we would see you for who you are, that you are the center of everything, that you are the most important thing in our life, and that uh, all the things that seem so urgent are not as urgent as we think they are in light of, of pressing into you and fulfilling the mission that you've called us to fulfill. We're to be light, we're to be salt in this world, and we can't do it unless we're connected to you. God, I just pray that you would help us to prioritize, help us to organize our lives around your agenda. Pray that we would completely be devoted for you, and we know that you'll provide all the time that we need to get those other things done. Help us to walk in faith by putting you first daily. Pray for these that uh, are feeling spiritually dry. God, I pray that you draw near to them. I pray that you would. Uh, if, they, if they need prayer, I pray that you give them courage to move and come down. 